Material on this program is intended for general information only and should not be taken as specific investment, tax, or legal advice. None of the information contained in this broadcast is intended by the host to be a solicitation for the purchase or sale of any security. Endorsed Local Provider is an endorsement of customer service only and does not reflect quality of investment decisions and is not connected to investment returns. Further information is available by contacting Richard Young Associates, a registered investment advisor, security sold through Independent Financial Group, LLC, member of FINRA and SIP. Welcome to Money MD, where the money doctors are in the house and giving out prescriptions for better financial health and making smart decisions with your money. We give common sense solutions to your complex problems. I'm Steve Marvin, a certified financial planner and an investment advisor with over 20 years of experience providing financial planning and investment advice. And I'm John Travis. I'm a Dave Ramsey local provider. I also have an MBA in finance and have been helping corporations and individuals with planning for over 20 years. And I'm Gordon Leppard, financial advisor with these two guys at Richard Young Associates. It's great to be here today, guys. Yeah, good Saturday morning. It is a great Saturday morning, and, uh, you know, we're excited to have you listen to us today on our weekly radio show. We're right here every Saturday like today from 9 to 10 a.m. Yeah, you can also go to our website, moneymd.net. We have a link in the top right-hand corner. Uh, you can stream us. You can also go to the dial at 1230 a.m., and uh, we also have podcasts. So if you happen to miss a show, you can go out to the uh, to the podcast website that we have, and we have a link on our website, moneymd.net, and uh, catch up on any shows that you've missed or any topics. A lot of people want to listen to specific topics. We had one last week on um, on tax rates, you know, that for the c- candidates, and uh, we've got some more information in that area today. Yeah, we do. We do. We got a lot of good in- topics to talk about this morning. Um, one of them is going to be, uh, Social, gonna be Social Security. Yeah, it's it's kind of the stance that the candidates have on Social Security, and um, you know. There's a change is coming. <laughs> Has to be though. We, you know, we're going to have to have some that's, changes. That's that's just what it boils down to. So um, depends on which candidates you talk about on their plans. So we're going to dive into the details and tell you who's thinking what about Social Security going forward. Yeah, and they're all talking about changing it. So it's not yes. like anybody's going to leave it alone. Eventually, it's got to be changed because yeah. it's running out of money. Yeah. Another topic we're going to talk about is income tax traps to avoid in your estate. Um, this is a little bit unique, you know, something we haven't talked about much because most people aren't, aren't subject to estate taxes, but they are subject to income taxes in their estate. And there's some planning you can do to avoid these, but they can be very substantial. So you want to tune in for this. This is a very important topic, particularly if you have aging parents. That and, you know, before you, you're usually faced with that estate issue, retirement comes. And uh, we've got a couple of things here on the checklist uh, that you you need to consider. And, you know, um, doesn't always come down to the number exactly or the bottom dollar, but there are some other things that should be considered along with those numbers. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're going to cover that during that time. Exactly. Okay, very good. We're going to start off here, though, with the financial fact of the week. Yeah, this comes from the American Association of Individual Investors. Um, And, uh, guys, it's interesting. When you look back at history a little bit, um, you start to understand things to do and things not to do. And uh, history doesn't repeat itself perfectly. We all understand that. But, um, you know, we can look back at these stats and the decisions people make and say, you know, this is probably what you should do going forward. So here's the financial fact. The S&P 500 bottomed on March the 9th of 2009. So if you go back to 2008, horrible year, and then 2009 started out, the first two months were down about 20%, and the bottom was on March the 9th. 
And that was the end of a 17-month bear market in which the stock index fell 57%. Wow. Huge. I mean, that is, you know, it was right behind the Great Depression, you know, in in, uh, magnitude. Um, And a weekly survey of stock investors on 3-4, on March the 4th, so about five days before the bottom, 70% were bearish. So wow. think about that. that. That means they were probably selling if they had not already sold versus buying. So in reality, the 9th, March the 9th, was the perfect buying opportunity. But 70% of people were bearish, and I guarantee you they were not buying at that point. So and that was the highest bearish mark, I believe, ever. Ever That's recorded. Right. That's right. It which just, is interesting because that means the average investor was the most wrong they've ever been. Yeah. That's a good way of putting it. Hmm. They were the most wrong ever. Positive way to spend a negative. (laughs) At the bottom, they were the most wrong. Yeah, Yeah, because the market made like over 90% over the next 12 months in its recovery. Yeah, that's right. And if you look at at history, you know, you look at trends. When the markets are down like that, most people are are selling. The amount of money that's being sold out of mutual funds is very, very high. Um, And it's actually the wrong thing to be doing. I mean, if you're a believer that the markets will go up over time, which they always have, um, why wouldn't you buy some when the markets are low? Exactly. It's just kind of intuitive a little. And I think part of the moral of the story here is when you feel like things are in despair in the stock market, that's the time to buy, not sell. So when you mm-hmm. have that feeling of wanting to sell and get out because things look so bad, recognize it's just emotions and you cannot act on that or you will hurt yourself. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what people did back then in 2009. Yeah, and doing some rebalancing like we're, we've just gone through that process is, is a way to do that. Exactly. You know, buy some things low. Exactly. Sell okay. high. That's right. Yeah, okay, great financial fact of the week. And that leads us up here to our first topic, and that is where do the candidates stand on Social Security? You know, mm-hmm. how are they going to fix it, John? I mean, I know they all have a, a secret sauce recipe for fixing Social Security. The silver bullet. And I'm sure we're going to love all of them, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, they're all great. You know, the sad thing is, is that, uh, you know, it seems like everybody always talks about this issue, but nothing's ever done. That's I mean, right. we've been talking that we've had this radio show now for what five plus years, and I know we've been talking about these changes, and no one will step up to the plate and address it. Oh, and this has been going on for twenty years. Yes, yeah, that's right. You know, ever since Reagan made a change mm-hmm. back in the eighties of raising the retirement age, it's been talked about time and time again, and. Like you said, nothing ever gets done. It's yeah. a shame. So, so we're getting closer to figuring out, you know, Hillary is still leading. Uh, Trump is still leading with Cruz kind of heading up right behind him. And um, so this is a good time to kind of step back. Last week we looked at taxes and some of their tax plans. Uh, this week we're going to look at Social Security. And Social Security is expected to be able to pay full benefits through 2033. Okay, so we're and talking that, about another. That's not that seven, far. Seventeen years. years. No, it's not. not in the big scheme of things, that's really it, not that far. That's right. And after that, the federal government could only pay about seventy-five percent of the promised benefits to retirees, their dependents, and survivors. And that's unless Congress acts uh, before that time. So, you know, <clears throat> lawmakers should address the financial challenges facing Social Security and Medicare as soon as possible. Um, the Social Security and Medicare trustees actually wrote that. 
in the 2015 annual report. So the folks that are running these programs are saying, hey, guys, you got to do something. Taking action sooner rather than later will permit consideration of a broader range of solutions and provide more time to phase in some of these changes so the public can uh, have adequate time to prepare. So, you know, the trustees are saying, guys, this is broken. It needs to be fixed. So those solutions generally include raising taxes, cutting benefits, um, maybe moving out the the, uh, full retirement age, or maybe a combination of one or two of those. so there's a couple of different solutions on the table that we're you know we're going to talk about here. Yeah. So this is how the systems work. By the way, um, payroll taxes, Medicare premium premiums, taxes on Social Security benefits, and interest on all that money are all credited to the Social Security trust funds. So that's what's feeding into those funds. Um, the other payroll taxes, like old age and survivor OASI trust funds. They pay retirement and survivor benefits. Um, the disability uh, insurance trust fund pays disability benefits, and the health insurance trust funds pay for inpatient hospital and related care. You know, but it's still it's all kind of smoke and mirrors because <clears throat> since it's all pretty much been spent and there's IOUs sitting in those funds. They're really just a, another direct obligation of the federal budget on an ongoing basis. So even though they're going to run out of money, mm-hmm. you know, it's just it's just going to increase our our debt. Yeah, I mean, right. they're not going to stop paying it, but hopefully, it will. The idea of it running out of money will force lawmakers to take some action. Yeah, let's hope so. Last fall, Congress um, narrowly prevented the exhaustion of the disability trust that was expected to run out of money in late 2016, and it would have forced a 20 percent cut in disability benefits during a presidential election year and obviously that ain't going to happen <laughs> you know they're going to make sure that the party no. that's in charge gets that one through so and and that's huge that's a huge cut there you know to, to prevent the shortfall the lawmakers agree to allow the disability trust fund to borrow from the more financially stable retirement trust fund as it has done tons of time nearly a dozen times in the past already but the price of that accounting maneuver was the elimination of two key Social Security claiming strategies that people have been using, and that was the file and suspend mm-hmm. and the claiming uh, spousal benefits only. So that changed some people's uh, retirement strategies and approaches yeah, because of those two changes. Yeah, it did. Those claiming strategies had been on, on the uh, Obama um, administration's hatchet list for, for several years, and this imminent funding crisis of the Disability Trust Fund, it provided it with leverage it needed to get lawmakers to agree to eliminate them and you know these new rules which take effect this year i mean they were basically tucked into a you know a crucial spending bill without warning or discussion so you know president uh, obama signed the uh, the bipartisan budget act of 2015 into law in november so you know i think this you know a couple lessons from this is they're starting to clamp down on um I don't want to say giveaways, but, you know, these strategies are an example of people were using those and maybe getting more than their fair share, but they're, they're closed down. The other thing is these rules change really, really quickly. I mean, no one knew that they were coming down. Basically, there were there was press that you know the bill had been passed, and oh by the way, these strategies are gone. So yeah, blindsided. People. Yeah, you can't really count on um, some of the benefits that are being promised you today. So when you do your planning, you got to be conservative from a planning perspective. So we'll cover this um, a little bit more detail when we come back. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, those those changes came about really quickly, and mm-hmm. nobody really knew they were in the works back behind the scenes. So. 
Good point. But if you have questions here before the break, um, you can email us at info at moneymd.net, or you can give us a call, Richard Young Associates, 706-739-0725. You're listening to MoneyMD. We'll be right back after these messages. Stay with us. Welcome back to Money MD, where the money doctors are in the house. I'm Steve Marbert, a certified financial planner, and I'm here with John Travis, who is a Dave Ramsey local provider, and Gordon Leppard, who is a financial advisor at Richard Young Associates, along with us. And we are continuing our discussion here before the break about the candidates' positions on Social Security. How to fix the system? Well, in, in some cases, it's more like expand the system. Yeah, but, right, right. You know, they all have opinions about it, so that's what we're digging into here. Yeah, and if you look, guys, um, you know, we talked earlier about the um, full benefits are expected to be able to pay through 2033, about 17 more years, and then they would cut it back to 75%. <clears throat> so there, there are issues. I mean, the 2015 annual report, the trustees came and said, you know, there needs to be changes, and um, you know we hear about changes frequently, and you know a lot of different things are uh, are thrown around. Um, we already see some changes that happened this last year. They're going into effect now, and their Social Security claiming strategies. And you know, a lot of times we see these things come through bills, and no one knows about them, and poof, they uh, they change the system and the way they work. So, um, you know, when, when you do planning, you just got to take a conservative approach on some of these benefits from the government because they're being changed. Um, if we look at 2016, the way Social Security works today is employers and employees pay 7.65% of their pay up to about 118000 to finance Social Security and Medicare, and uh, self-employed workers pay a combined rate of 15.3%. So your employer is also, if you're employed by a you know business, your employer is also paying that 7.65 as well. Those who earn more than 118,500 pay 1.45 percent health insurance tax on all wages in excess of that amount. And individuals with earnings over 200,000 and married couples over 250 pay an additional 0.9 percent is mandated uh, by the Affordable Care Act. So we've already seen some tax increases implemented during the Obama administration. And watch out if the Democrats, you know, win the the president seat and they have, you know, some uh, leverage in Congress, Katie, bar the door. I mean, it's changing. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Both the Democrats, Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders of Vermont, they both pledged to expand Social Security benefits to protect the most vulnerable beneficiaries, as they say by increasing taxes on the rich. Um, so, you know, their idea of fixing the system is to make it bigger, you know, make <laughs> yeah. it more expensive. I'm, I'm trying to get... I'm, I'm trying to get that logic. Yeah, yeah I, I don't know. That's, I don't understand that's, that. You know, that's a Democrat's logic. You know, it's... Wow. Socialism okay. is great to run off other people's money. That's right. Yeah, Republican candidates, they tend to focus on reining in program costs. So we have to look at different ways at trying to get more money into the trust fund, Ms. Clinton said during her town hall meeting back in February. Raising the cap on income that is subject to Social Security tax is one way of doing it, she said. Another way of doing it is expanding the Social Security tax to include investment income. Mm, like dividends, Uh-oh. interest. Yeah, and if you're a small business owner, I think she's talking about dividends that come from a business, too, all the business income from, mm-hmm. like, S-corporations. I think I've heard that somewhere in her talk. So 
That would be brutal. She's got some big ideas for expanding it, and Bernie Sanders is yeah. even bigger. You would feel the burn if Bernie's in there. No kidding. <laughs> Wouldn't we all? Yeah. He uh, he says Social Security is a great example of democratic uh, socialism, suggesting to lifting the cap on wages from 118500 up to 250000 as a way of increasing retirement benefits for low-income workers and extending the life of, of trust funds. So he's talking about taking the cap off, taking it all the way up to 250000 And, you know, there's studies right now that people that are retiring have put in more money than they're getting out. So it's not a – it is a way to redistribute wealth. And, and for some people it is a – it is their life blood. It's their system that they get money. But, man, I tell you what, it's – um. These some of these tax proposals are are pretty incredible. Well, and then you have the the flip side of the coin, and Donald Trump he's yet to specifically outline his plan. Although he he has said that Social Security is a deal between the government and the American citizens, and the government needs to uphold its end of the bargain. Well, instead of raising the full retirement age, as some of the other GOP candidates have suggested, Mr. Trump said. He would focus on the program's tremendous waste, fraud, and abuse to rein in the cost. Uh, recently, he scoffed about uh, many centurions uh, currently receiving Social Security benefits, declaring that they don't exist. You know, that I disagree. My, my granny's 100. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, I you, think he, you've got to take that with a grain of salt sometimes. Unfortunately, I think it's wishful thinking on his part to think that there's, you know, no, those people don't exist and there's a huge savings there. Mm-hmm. No, I don't, you know, I don't think that there's that many. Freddie, when he gets in the White House, he's going to find out they really do exist. I think it's maybe another yeah. Trump birther argument here. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, Rubio um, said he opposes any benefit changes to current retirees like his mom, but he'd be open to future changes um, such as, you know, raising the uh, full retirement age for younger workers like himself. Uh, uh, Senator Ted Cruz said he would support a gradual increase in the full retirement age and change uh, the way that Social Security benefits are indexed to inflation so that it matches inflation rather than exceeding inflation. Mr. Cruz also supports carving out a portion of payroll taxes to allow younger workers to invest in personal accounts. And finally here, Kasich um, from Ohio pledges to lead a bipartisan effort to reform and preserve Social Security, including possible changes to the retirement age and how inflation is calculated. And I would say at a minimum, guys, I really think, um, you know, changing the, the retirement age is is a no-brainer. And I think it's something yeah, they really ought to consider. Gives people, you know, if you can do it, you know, for folks that are 45, it gives them, you know, 17, 20 years to plan on that. So it doesn't really change their situation exactly that much. Exactly. The other thing is the inflation factor. I think they can change that, and and uh, they could save, they can make it whole again with just those two items. Well, yeah, and Rubio suggested both those plans. Yeah, I think that's exactly that would be the most painless way of doing it is to to do it down the road for folks that are, you know, uh, that are young now and raise the retirement age from sixty seven to seventy. Um, albeit you can still draw at 62, but you're going to draw a reduced benefit. Right. You know, so rather than 70% of full benefit now, maybe you get 60. Yeah. You know? So just have to do another step like they did back in the 80s of raising the retirement age. Mm-hmm. I think that's exactly right. Yeah, and if you want more information, um, uh, this article, by the way, came from Investment News, is the one that published it. But AARP um, has something called takeastand.aarp.org. And so it, it has issues. I'm sure it has tax rates out there, but also has Social Security. So if you want to keep track of that, you can go to their website. Okay, good topic. And that leads us up here to our question of the week. 
question of the week. So, um, you know, we get this question periodically about um, maybe a parent having a stock or a mutual fund that they've had for a long time. I mean, you know, um, we run into, you know, the the, um, the older generation, a lot of times they would invest in single stocks. I, I had a client whose father had a couple million dollars in, in Exxon Mobil, wow. and so we worked really quickly to, to when he passed away to get out of that because everything was in one stock but the question is is my mother has a stock that was purchased in 1975 and wondered what she should do with it it's worth about thirty thousand dollars and it's actually walmart okay. so do you think walmart's increased in value a little bit over just slightly long a lot 40 yeah. years so the call space is on that i think they're on the decline now though so they are they, they are be but careful if you would have bought you know initially so you know if you would have put in i don't know what what the cost basis is but yeah. really the answer is is you got to figure out what the cost basis how much was originally invested if a thousand dollars was invested and you have dividends over the years so maybe your cost basis is ten thousand dollars if it's worth 30 today then you would owe about a 15 percent tax bill on that twenty thousand dollar gain if she's in a 25% bracket, right. she's in a 15% bracket, she Could be might zero. owe zero. That's right. Could be zero. So it depends on the tax situation. Um, but you, you, you want to look at, you know, there's a couple different pieces of, of the puzzle that are moving right here. So not a flat answer about selling it or, you know, diversifying. If she When she passes away, um, you would receive a stepped-up basis. Right, so that basically means that you would pay no taxes at all um, because you've inherited it at, at the uh, stepped-up value on the date of death. Yeah, so there's three options then, right? There's either either hold it till you pass away and get a step-up in basis. You could gift it to a charity, right, in right. lieu of cash, um, maybe to your church or whatever, and and that would then you'd avoid the capital gains tax, or you could sell it and diversify it. And if she is in a 15% bracket, maybe she can sell it for and get zero, pay zero, or mm-hmm. sell it over a number of years and pay zero for long-term capital gains. So I see kind of three answers to that, possibly. Yeah, there's a, there's a provision in the tax code that if you're in a 15% bracket or less and you have capital gains taxes up to a certain level, you have no you have no bill that you do. So, um, you know, a couple different options here, but you, um, you I think you want to consult a CPA we, when we talk about taxes and trying to figure out the tax bill and what you should do from your situation, you know, we, we obviously deal with taxes and we um, certainly plan on um, trying to minimize taxes, but working with a CPA in this situation would, would be advisable. Yeah, exactly. Everybody's different, but there are a lot of options here that she has. Depends on how important that money is to her mm-hmm. as well. You know, if it's really important she's drawing income or taking the dividends, um, you know, you may want to make sure it doesn't go away. It depends on how old she is, too. You know, if she's 70, she's got a long time to plan for it, potentially. Right. And she may want to consider selling it and diversifying it. But uh, a lot of good answers there. Okay, that leads up to our break here. But if you have questions, you can email us at info at moneymd.net, or you can give us a call, Richard Young Associates, 706-739-0725. You're listening to Money MD. We'll be right back after these messages and Gina News. Stay with us. Welcome back to Money MD, where the money doctors are in the house. I'm Steve Marbert, a certified financial planner, and I'm here with John Travis, who is a Dave Ramsey local provider, and Gordon Leopard, who is a financial advisor at Richard Young Associates, along with us. 
And we are going to lead off our next segment here with a new topic, and that is income tax traps to avoid in your state. You know, taxes are not always the most exciting topic until you have to shell out a huge Mm -hmm. tax bill or Mm -hmm. a huge payment to settle a tax bill that could have been avoided. Then it becomes very interesting. Very important at that time. Very important at the time, exactly. So, you know, now that taxes are on everybody's mind, let's take a look at an area that people often overlook, which eventually can make a big difference to you or your heirs. And we're talking about income taxes in your estate, not estate taxes. That's totally different. So don't make the... Don't make the common mistake of neglecting income tax planning for your estate just because it's unlikely that you'll ever owe estate taxes. It's true, most taxpayers will never face any federal estate tax, and that's because the amount of exemption from estate taxes has been increased all the way up to $5.4 million per person, so $10.9 million for a married couple after the second spouse dies. That pretty much covers most people in today's world. However, estates and their heirs still might owe significant income taxes inside the estate, and that's going to reduce the amount the heirs will inherit, and that's where estate planning makes a big difference, particularly income tax estate planning. Um, So a combination of wise planning now and prudent steps taken by your executor or your trustee later can save a bundle on taxes. And so here's what you need to know about cutting income taxes for your estate. Yeah, so income tax, I mean, like you said, Steve, they, they can hit estates hard. And, and basically an income tax return must be filed for for an estate every year that it has income of as little as $600 until the estate is dissolved. And unfortunately, income tax brackets for an estate return are triggered at much lower levels than that for personal returns. For example, for 2016, the top 39.6% bracket doesn't apply on an individual tax return until the uh, income, taxable income, hits about 415000 but it applies to an estate and a trust when its taxable income hits $12,400, so a much, much lower threshold. Yep. And a state's income may include interest and dividends from investments, items owed to the deceased, such as rent, um, income from a private business, compensation paid by an employer after death, and uh, any other income received by an estate. So very, very low threshold that you start getting taxed at a very high rate. And that can be hit very quickly. Yes, that's it right. It can, and that's one reason why you want to be smart not sell assets inside of an estate and generate a bunch of income. That's why you want to gift assets out of the estate. You want to distribute them in kind. Very, very important, and people people don't realize that. A lot of these executors or you know, just family members don't understand the estate tax or the income tax portion of the estate. Generally, you want to reduce the amount of income tax that the estate will owe by reducing the amount of income it will receive and directing that money elsewhere. However, I mean, this may sound, this may be a lot more complex than it sounds. Um, Having, uh, well, here is what you need to, you can do now and what you should make sure your executor of your estate or your trustee knows to do when when the time comes. So we'll start here. Um, The first one is consider donating income-producing assets to charity now while you're still alive rather than making bequests insert into charities inside your will that's because the rules have changed 
You know, it used to be advantageous for estates to reduce estate tax by just making charitable donations inside the estate um, after you passed away. But if an estate doesn't owe estate tax, then there's no tax deduction that will be available for charitable donations made by an estate. So by donating it now while you're still alive, you can take a tax deduction that your estate wouldn't get. And by reducing the amount of income-producing assets that will be left in your estate, it also will reduce the estate's income tax. Um, These assets might include stocks, bonds, mutual fund shares, real estate. You know, so if you have already included in your will a bequest to charity and you don't want to redo your will, you may just simply tell the charity that you're going to make a gift to them now in exchange for the charity sending you a letter that waives its right to the request, uh, to receive the bequest um, in your will. Acknowledging that current donation now is an advancement of that bequest in your will. However, I think I'd just go ahead and change my will. For that <laughs> yeah, one. That's right. Yeah. Well, and it kind of simplifies that step. Exactly. Too, you know, it streamlines it. The next one that uh, you have on the list here, Steve, is designate individuals as beneficiaries and contingent beneficiaries in retirement plans. Okay, that's kind of rolling and staying right in line with what you're talking about there. Retirement accounts are often the most valuable financial assets that many individuals own. Right. So, you know, they should be a key consideration in any estate plan. If you don't designate an individual beneficiary for um, your IRA, the IRA may be included in the assets to be distributed according to the provisions in your will. And the income tax on on it will be due within five years under you know certain IRS. Uh, or excuse me, certain IRA rules there. So Yeah, that's right. Yeah, in contrast, if you designate your spouse, your children, or other individuals as primary and contingent beneficiaries in your IRA, they will be able to stretch out those distributions from it over an entire lifetime, providing them with decades of tax-deferred investment returns. That's a key, big difference. Keep in mind that unlike a 401k plan, your spouse is not automatically designated as the beneficiary of your IRA. Um, So that was a good one. Next one here on the list is consider creating a trust. If you create a trust and you designate assets to put into the trust rather than into your estate, the trustee can manage those assets after your death, can minimize taxes. Um, Those assets can be out of your estate. Uh, You can give the trustee as much or a little discretion as you wish over how to distribute the assets and who receives them. The trustee could, for instance, stretch out the distributions from the trust over a number of years and decide which are the most tax-efficient ways to make those distributions. A trustee can be anyone from a spouse or an adult child to a financial institution. Distributions include the income generated by the assets in the trust, um, and But be sure that the trust document permits inclusion of capital gains as a form of income that can be distributed in that way. So for an example here, the trustee, in conjunction with your heirs, might decide that in certain years it's best to give the bigger distributions to younger beneficiaries who have a minimal income or so that they're in lower tax brackets, such as beneficiaries who are in college or starting out in their careers, rather than giving it to those who are in higher tax brackets. So that's just one more good way of uh, limiting the income 
inside your estate. Yeah, another one here on the list is reducing future capital gains tax. And uh, when an heir inherits certain types of assets, um, such as stock or piece of art, the asset's tax basis is reset at the market value at the date of your death. So instead of the original cost to acquire the asset, you now have a stepped-up basis. So future taxable gains and losses when the asset is sold by the heir are determined based on this tax basis, which is called stepped-up basis. We talked about that earlier in the question of the week. So if it's higher than your initial cost or the step-down basis uh, is if it's lower. So the tax basis is subtracted from the eventual sale price to determine the capital gain or loss. And a stepped-up basis lowers the capital gain taxes that an heir will eventually pay. So if you have an appreciated stock, you may want to hold on to it. Yeah, exactly. Just like we talked about in the uh, prescription, uh, well, I guess it was the question of the week. Yeah, an example of that would be if your parent buys a stock at a price of, say, $20 a share, and the value is $50 when the child inherits the stock, the child later sells that share for, say, $55, the child's taxable gain is just $5 a share, um, even though the stock has risen more than $35 since the parent bought it. And that's because of that stepped-up basis you were talking about, John, where when someone passes away, the basis gets stepped up to the value at death. So that's a big benefit. You want to take advantage of that in estates and not uh, not sell it inside the estate and right. create a lot of taxes or anything like that. So, so how do you make sure that capital gains will be minimized? Um, one way is to maximize the advantage of a stepped-up tax basis, That, like we were just talking about. Make sure that your executor or your trustee knows that he or she will need to carefully reju- uh, record the adjusted basis for each asset inside your state at the date of death so that your beneficiaries can use that basis whenever they sell the assets in the future. This is really important for valuable items that don't trade regularly, such as real estate, shares in a private business, um, artwork, antiques, other collectibles that might require an appraisal. An appraisal is just obtained... should be obtained, really, in any estate, but you you pay a modest price for that but you avoid the costly conflict with the IRS in the future. So the executors or the trustees, um, they should make sure they get an appraisal. When we come back from break, we'll continue with this and continue this discussion. But if you have questions, you can email us at info at moneymd.net, or you can give us a call at Richard Young Associates, 706-739-0725. You're listening to Money MD. We'll be right back after these messages. Welcome back to Money MD, where the money doctors are in the house. I'm Steve Marbert, a certified financial planner, and I'm here with John Travis, who is a Dave Ramsey local provider, and Gordon Leppard, who is a financial advisor at Richard Young Associates, along with us. And we are continuing our discussion here before the break about the income tax traps to avoid in your estate. Um, and we were just talking, you know, this is a little bit of a complicated topic. A little bit. You know, and it's it's kind of hard to convey here on radio, but... You know, there are several ways you can get hit hard with income tax 
in an estate, like say you you have elderly parents, they're they're getting ready to pass away, and when they pass away, um, you know there can be income from you know rental property that comes in, and the problem is as as John you mentioned here shortly ago. The brackets inside of an estate are very, very compressed. Mm-hmm. You know, you hit the top bracket when you have over twelve thousand four hundred dollars of income. That's a not a lot of income. Yeah, that tax is almost forty percent. Right, and it can take you know a year, even a year and a half, to settle an estate. And during that time, it's creating income. And if there's over twelve thousand in there, it's taxed at at forty percent essentially. That's a big deal. Mm-hmm. So you can save a lot of taxes if you do a little bit of planning and make sure that you don't have an estate that creates a whole bunch of income. One way is to get rid of property. You know, let's say grandma has a or mom has a beach house, you know, and it's coming up on rental season and that sucker is going to kick out $40,000 of income during rental season. Well, you know, I mean, it might be a good idea to get that out of their estate before they pass away because that's going to kick out. A lot of income, and it's going to be taxed at a very high rate. Yeah. And, yeah. You know, so again, you're not going to be able to sell it in the estate. You're not going to want to sell it in the estate. So it's just going to take a long time to settle those kind of estates. So you just got to be careful what's in there. It can be hit really, really hard. Consider donating income producing assets to charity now rather than doing it in your estate. We talked about that. Um, Consider creating a trust and getting some of those assets out, like that beach house. Put it in a personal residence trust or some kind of trust outside of the estate so it's not creating income um, in the estate. And and create a trust that distributes that income to beneficiaries. Um, You know, reduce future capital gains tax. Um, You can do that by selling stocks or income-producing type assets that kick out a lot of capital gains tax um, or, or kick out distributions, capital gains tax distributions, but also you, you want to make sure that you take advantage of the step-up basis in an estate. Uh, you don't want heirs to end up selling assets that have a stepped-up basis but not being aware of that basis, um, the stepped-up basis at the date of death. is another thing you want to make sure about. So there are lots of things you can do inside of an estate to reduce the estate ta- uh, the, the income taxes. I guess the point here we want to make sure that you understand is that it's an important topic, mm-hmm. and there there can be a lot of income taxes inside of an estate, not estate taxes. So just make sure that you do some planning, sit down with somebody, include that in your tax planning yeah. um, for your mom or for yourself. Uh, we could, to avoid income taxes so we, in an estate. We can certainly help with those discussions, but including an estate planning attorney would be uh, would be wise also. It sure would. sure would. So, Okay. Um, that leads us up here to our prescription of the week. And the prescription is, if you want to save some money, download Walmart's Savings Catcher app. All you have to do is download that on your phone, and then you scan your receipts when you shop at Walmart into your phone, into that app. It will automatically check around for lower prices, and when it finds lower prices, it'll credit you the difference between those low prices and Walmart's price, and you eventually can just redeem that for a gift card, and Kathy used it just the other week, and she redeemed over $200 of credit on a gift card. Pretty cool. Pretty good savings right there. It's a big savings. It really is. So uh, you want to make sure you, you use that if you shop at Walmart. Download the Walmart Savings Catcher app. Okay, that leads up to our last topic here, and that is retiring. 
Go retiring. Ahead. Go yeah. ahead, Gordon. Talk about it. <laughs> yeah, I, I can't even remember the topic. Another checklist for the retiring. retiring or retirement checklist. You know what? What are some things that you have on your checklist? And this may be a little bit different than uh, some of the things you know that people normally think about and that's why we're we're kind of bringing it to light you know americans they love list right they do. i mean from everything from baby names to top colleges and obviously places to retire in fact aiken's been on uh mm-hmm. some of those lists oh, before no doubt. you know right. and they, they're on it yeah. pretty consistently which is pretty cool um lists are fun to read and it could possibly come in handy especially when making decisions like this but when it comes to something as unique and personal as our retirement City and state rankings, they're just a mediocre starting point at best. You know, if you move to a nice place, but you don't know anyone, it could get lonely pretty quick, <laughs> you know. So, yeah, the truth is most most Americans, when they retire, they pretty much stay put. They really don't move around that much. For the most so, part, you're right. You know, these lists of where to move when you retire, uh, there are not a the whole lot of people that do that. But some do. We all know people that have moved in retirement. Um, some 6% of those ages between 55 and 59 moved uh, in the last two years, according to the census survey. And uh, these movers, just uh, uh, just 5% of them, though, relocated to another region of the country. Uh, most remained in the same county. And uh, among 65 to 69-year-olds, the percentages are even a lot lower. So people really don't move that much when it comes to retirement. That, that's right. And, you know, bank, uh, bankrate.com, they just released a, a list of best states uh, to retire in this past week. Wyoming was at the top of the list. And can you guess who was at the bottom of the list? Somewhere uh, North. New York. Probably, yeah, probably New York. That's right. right. Yeah, and, and taxes were a strong consideration, you know, in this uh, this particular study here. If, if your retirement dreams do cross state lines, here's some considerations that you really need to think about. And it starts with family. Yeah, you know, there's not one of these lists that knows where your family lives. Um, but the desire to, to live closer to relatives often drives the decision to relocate in retirement. Uh, family considerations are very important. I mean, you know, one of the biggest regrets that people often have at the end of their life is they wish they would have spent more time uh, with their family. And uh, in the grand scheme of things, when you're on your deathbed, you're not going to think, I wish I didn't pay New York so much in taxes or, you know, some other you right. know, thing about the, the best places to live. So it really does come down to, to family. And we see that when we talk to folks. Absolutely. That's usually the driver being close to kids or grandkids. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, families really important, particularly in retirement. Um, Taxes are another issue. I mean, speaking of taxes, while that's not the most important factor, taxes do often factor prominently into that methodology of the best places to live list, Gordon, like you mentioned. I mean, they generally, you know, shouldn't drive your decision of where to live in retirement, but the tax profile of some place, you know, someone may retire to certainly has to be considered. You know, some states like Florida, they have no income tax, while other states like Pennsylvania exempt certain retirement income from their their state income tax calculations. Um, South Carolina and Georgia both give a very large credit for retirees, so a lot of retirees pay very little tax in, in our state here. Um, some states have a, a state estate tax with a lower threshold than the federal level. So while many states have no state tax at all, you know, property taxes vary from region to region, so they don't tell the whole story either. I mean, for example, coastal places in Florida may have relatively low-cost uh, property taxes, but they have sky-high homeowner's insurance costs. 
So the the moral here is the moral of the story is you really have to look at the whole picture That's when right. it comes to taxes. That's right. Yeah, and some of those insurance rates can be astronomical. You know, bankrate.com they also use data from the Tax Foundation on states overall tax burdens while this is helpful as a general gauge, you know, people people uh they locate to different places for different reasons. For instance, like younger families, they might be willing to to pay higher taxes to be in a good school system, mm-hmm. but after the kids are out of school, then it's time to get out of Dodge. You know, if, if they're thinking about uh, lowering their tax rate, they may consider moving then. Yeah, that's right. Crime is another big issue. Um, you know, some uh, places, you know, have higher crime rates, and, and that is certainly factored into the state-by-state list of the best places to live. But, you know, they point out here that most places in the U.S. have very low crime rates relative to other countries. <clears throat> so it really shouldn't be a major consideration, you know, unless you're thinking about moving to downtown Chicago. Uh, yeah, I don't know right. about that. What's the last one there, John? Yeah, health care is obviously high on the list. A lot of people want to have, you know, good quality health care, a lot of options in the area. So that's why this area, I mean, there's there's quite a bit of health care between Aiken and um, and uh, Georgia as well. Some, some pretty good options. So health care is definitely one of those items that people look at. That's a strong consideration yep. there. It is, yeah. I mean, personally, I think we have a great place to retire right here in the CSRA. Yes, I mean, we're, it's a great area of the country, great climate. We're close to the beach. We're pretty close to the mountains. Um, wow. So just move here. If you're out there listening, located, you know. If you're out there listening, you're looking for a place to retire, yeah. come right here. A lot I think of people we, do. It's a great place. I really do. I really do. Okay. Well, this has been this week's edition of Money MD. Tune in next Saturday from 9 to 10 a.m. to hear more prescriptions for your financial health. Do check us on our website, moneymd.net. Email us your questions at info at moneymd.net. Or give us a call at Richard Young Associates, 706-739-0725. Thanks for listening. Have a great weekend. Have a good one. Ladies and gentlemen. Material on this program is intended for general information only and should not be taken as specific investment, tax, or legal advice. None of the information contained in this broadcast is intended by the host to be a solicitation for the purchase or sale of any security. Endorsed local provider is an endorsement of customer service only and does not reflect quality of investment decisions and is not connected to investment returns. Further information is available by contacting Richard Young Associates, a registered investment advisor. Securities sold through Independent Financial Group, LLC, member of FINRA and SIP. See you.